Hey there, Internet. This is Trace Dominguez again for Seeker Plus. It's a show where we take massive topics and we break them down into little nuggets of knowledge. And today we're talking about genes. Not like your Uncle Gene or, you know, Eugene Levy, but the genes inside of your body, inside of your cells, your DNA. This is a rebroadcast, but trust me, it's going to be really good. We're going to ask, what are genes exactly? And why do they matter? How can we use them to empower our doctors to pick up genes as a tool in the future of humanity? See what I mean? This is going to be really good. So what are genes? And why do they matter? The idea of genes originated with Darwin, believe it or not. It's the idea of kind of heredity and being passed down from person to person or organism to organism. But a gene itself is kind of, I don't know, in my mind, I always thought of it as kind of like, I don't know, it looked like a little bean or something. I don't know why I thought that. But it's a tiny bit of biological material. It's made of DNA, could be turned on and off. And they are incredible. And there's a lot of research on them. But there's still huge gaps in the knowledge on what a gene does. A gene is, again, a tiny piece of DNA. They live inside of chromosomes. They control lots of stuff inside of your body. Essentially, a gene is a general word for a piece of DNA that creates a protein. Proteins are a general word for an organic molecule of amino acids that builds everything in your body from structural components of body tissues such as muscle and hair and collagen to enzymes and antibodies. Essentially, genes create or determine everything that you're made of. But if they make everything, what makes genes, right? Genes are literally made of DNA. DNA bases, ATGC, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. And the genes are just runs of DNA that are inside of your cells. So genes can range in length from just a few hundred DNA base pairs to more than two million for the complicated ones. They live right inside of your chromosomes, which are inside of your nucleus of your cell. Uh, Chromosomes sort of look like kind of puffy X's, like X's wearing hammer pants. Uh, 23 chromosomes come from each parent cell, so you'd have 23 chromosomes in a sperm cell, 23 chromosomes in an egg cell, and when they come together, you get 46 chromosomes, which is how you make a tiny human. And it's also how we get genetic variation. Once those 46 meet up and they start creating a person, the variation in those genes is going to help making a new person good or different or varied rather than just a clone of its parents. So in bacteria, divide, they're essentially just a clone. Humans could do that. I mean, we can't literally do that. But if we did that, it would actually harm us or it would diminish us, to use a better word maybe. Sex is better than mitosis because it creates this variation. And our genes and the variation in those genes makes us stronger as a species. Now, all that being said, genes and DNA also exist outside of the cell nucleus and outside of those chromosomes and in mitochondrial DNA. Now, inside of the cell, the nucleus is there, and there's also like the endoplasmic reticulum and all of these other structures. But mitochondria also exist within the cell, and there's actually some theories that it was a the a bacteria that broke into the cell and ended up living there at some point ages and ages and ages ago. But they have their own DNA and their own genes. Uh, We'll come back to that in a minute. So knowing all that about genes, how many do we have? 
The Human Genome Project estimated that humans have between 20,000 and 25,000 genes. The Human Genome Project took the human DNA and sequenced it, or essentially looked at every piece of it to try and figure out what it all does. And in doing that, they found out that genes are actually pretty much the same from person to person. Everyone has similar genes with just slight variations. And of our DNA, 99% of it from person to person is pretty much the same. Your liver is my liver. Our hair is made of the same stuff. But 1% of that DNA accounts for all of our variation. All the different colors and shapes of every human on the planet is just within that 1% of our genes. That 1% is pretty powerful. And knowing all of that, and knowing that genes live inside of our chromosomes, they're part of our DNA, they are part of who we are, what can they do? So what exactly do genes do? And, you know, what don't genes do? Genes are made of DNA. They come in different types called alleles. So genes for hair color, for example, they might come with black hair. You might have blonde hair. You might have red hair. You might have a mix of any number of these groups. And those are different alleles. So genes are inherited. You get one from each parent, and they're passed down, again, from person to person. So as you're getting these genes, you're going to get your genetic makeup, your genetic predisposition, some diseases and some ways of looking, some structures on your body have genetic predispositions with these alleles. So say your mother is blonde and your father is a brunette. That would mean that your genetic makeup would have possibly an allele for blonde and allele for brown. Each gene has a dominant or recessive value or type. So if brown is dominant and blonde is recessive and mom and pop give you their genetics, you have a 75% chance of being a brunette. It's just kind of how genetics works. This was discovered by Gregory Mendel, a monk who bred pea plants. And he created these little squares where you could put like a big T and a little T, and that would be for a tall plant or a short plant. And you can create this whole system where you can determine, if you understand how genetics works, what kind of a plant you are likely to get, or in this case, what kind of hair color you're likely to get. So genes can change a lot of different things. Some of them have single genes that do a lot of stuff, and some are lots of genes, which makes those mapping big T, little T a lot more complicated. But things that genes, we know that genes can change are your hair color, your eye color, the melanin content of your skin, or essentially how much melanin so your skin will look darker or lighter. Less melanin means lighter, more melanin means darker. It also can affect your height, which is a lot of different factors, but genes affect that. Additionally, it can affect your motivation, your personality, your confidence. All of those things can be determined in part by your genetics or the genes passed down to you. Additionally, intelligence is thought to be genetically predisposed. It also can change how your cells form, whether you have a widow's peak like I do right here, whether you roll your tongue like this, like that. That means that I have the genetic predisposition for that. There are other ones, too, like being able to uh, have dimples or your eye and ear shape. Having freckles is actually determined by one gene. Right and left-handedness is determined maybe by two genes. When you clasp your hands together, whether the thumb from your right hand is on top or the thumb from your left hand is on top, that is determined by your genes. Even things that you would never think about. Like the hemoglobin that sits on your red blood cells and carries oxygen through your blood, that is from a gene. And if that one gene is mutated, 
it could cause the hemoglobin on your blood to be generated wrong or improperly, really. And that is the basis for anemia. What genes can't change, on the other hand, is a whole ton of other stuff. Genes don't always do just one thing. A single gene might determine something, but it could also determine something else. Genes are usually just a smaller part of a greater whole of your genetics. So even though I mentioned melanin earlier as darker or lighter or more or less melanin, there's no one gene that controls how much melanin is is presented to your skin. This is changing all the time, by the way. The left and right-handedness, for example, that's still a debate as to whether it's one gene or two. I pulled a lot of this research either from memory or also from, uh, well, researching it this week, and things could have actually changed from when we filmed this episode until when you're watching it because genetics is changing so, so, so fast. Genes and diseases are also connected. A lot of our genetic mutation can cause diseases like anemia, which I just mentioned. In 2003, when the Human Genome Project completed their research, which, by the way, it's the largest collaborative biological research project ever, and it mapped the whole human genome, they found out a lot of things about genes and disease. The National Center for Biotechnology Information has a list of what chromosomes, those puffy Xs, have what genes, which then create a disease in that person. So for example, give me a couple examples here. Chromosome 4 has Huntington's, Parkinson's, narcolepsy, and and achondroplasia. All of those have genes in chromosome 4. And if you have the Huntington's gene, you will get Huntington's. Funnily enough, Huntington's is a dominant gene, but only manifests in a very small portion of the population. So just because something is dominant doesn't mean that it suddenly is everywhere. Chromosome 6 has epilepsy and diabetes determinants. Chromosome 7 has more diabetes determinants, plus cystic fibrosis, obesity, Williams and Pendred syndromes. Chromosomes, which contain this gene DNA, can affect so many different things, and just one gene can mess up everything or make everything kind of awesome. So you get the idea. We look at these genetic mutations and we can determine all sorts of things. There are companies that you can send a saliva swab to and they will tell you, based on stuff from the Human Genome Project and their own researches, what your DNA says about you, which is both good and bad. It can be negative to get all that genetic information without context. So there are some cautions there, but I would be super interested in trying it. I don't know about you guys. Uh, This is really cool because genes can tell us a lot because these mutations happened throughout our history. So if you look at genes, not only can you get an idea of who you are, but you can get an idea of where you came from and how your genetics have changed over time. So genes can tell you what you look like right now, but They can also tell you more because those mutations happen over time. So if we follow those mutations backward, we can get an idea of our own history just from looking at our genetics. So how do we use genes to look into our past? Over time, mutations happen. It's normal. It's actually part of what makes us so good now because over time our genetics have slowly mutated and changed. So we become a new species and hopefully a better one. Sometimes that happens over the course of our lives, not when we just breed new humans. That's called epigenetics. Essentially what you do will affect gene expression. 
It doesn't actually change your DNA, but through DNA methylation, or when other organic molecules latch onto your DNA, they determine what genes are being activated and what genes are not. The environment determines this. So if you have a lot of stress, that will change how your DNA is expressing itself to compensate for that stress. Funnily enough, for a long time throughout science, they didn't think this was a thing. They didn't think that if I worked out every day or if I had a stressful job, my genes would change. Turns out the genes themselves don't, but the way those genes are expressed do. Not that I'm changing my DNA, but the genes themselves or the way they're expressed can be inherited. So I can have a stressful job, and that's not just on me. It's also being passed on to my children, which increases the chances of a variety of different diseases and other problems over time. Epigenetics are influenced by your diet, your stress, your exercise, and all of that can be passed on. So for example, you might have had a dad with a stressful job, and his dad might have lived through a famine that famine caused stress on his genes, which maybe changed his gene expression. Then your dad had a stressful job, which changed his gene expression. And now you are carrying genetic material that has shadows of that famine and that stressful job. So we can look at someone's genes and we can determine a lot about their past. But this is all pretty new. I mentioned earlier, maybe you remember, that genetics is changing so fast. So not too long ago, we didn't think epigenetics were even a thing, and now we know that it does happen. And based on these changes, we can actually track populations over time. And based on other genetic information, we can track populations even further back than just, say, a generation or two. For example, the Y chromosome, the chromosome that determines whether you are a male, all fetuses have an X chromosome, and then a Y chromosome is injected at the right point to turn that fetus into a male. The Y chromosome is extremely old. It's been passed on relatively unchanged for tens of thousands of years. So knowing that the Y chromosome is passed on like that, think about somebody like Chinggis Khan. He famously sired lots and lots and lots of babies. So a study in 2003 found that 8% of men in 16 different populations that spanned Asia and 0.5% of men worldwide shared nearly identical sequences on their Y chromosome. And remember, that sequence has very little mutation. So you can look at the Y chromosome and see and track where Chinggis Khan was, where his offspring went, where their offspring went, and so on and so forth over the generations just by tracking DNA sequences because those DNA changes don't happen over time, or DNA changes don't happen in the Y chromosome. So looking at Y chromosomes, they can determine that a 1,000-year-old strain from Mongolia is still present today, which is probably from Chinggis Khan. Khan! It's not just Khan, though. There are other dynasties from Ireland, from China, and they can all be traced back to a single male throughout history. So when you're talking about genes, you're also talking about tiny, minute mutations over time. 
For example, the Y chromosome is ancient because, again, it's relatively unchanged from father to son. Mitochondrial DNA, which we mentioned earlier, is passed on from mother to offspring, and that's also relatively unchanged. So say you're tracing the Y chromosome DNA back to, say, Chinggis Khan. Then you can trace, perhaps, mitochondrial DNA as well and see if you can find crossover or overlap. It's super interesting and really, really complicated. The National Geographic Genographic Project looked at Y-chromosome DNA of a single man, Albert Perry. He's from North Carolina, if I recall correctly, and they found a very rare mutation on his Y-chromosome. A mutation, again, is a copying error. Using a massive DNA database, they were able to determine that that mutation on that Y chromosome, on that man in the southeastern United States, tied him to the Mbo tribe in western Cameroon in sub-Saharan Africa because they also have that mutation and nobody else does. Because mutations aren't standard. It's not like, oh, well, there's only three choices and you get one. There are so many possible mutations and permutations that they can figure out exactly who's related to whom through them. The mutation was so rare that finding it created an entirely new branch of the human genetic family tree. When that mutation happened 338,000 years ago, that was then passed on relatively unchanged from father to son all the way to today. Using DNA evidence like this, Scientists can find population movements, see where people traveled throughout history. They can also look at where that mutation is from, how old it is, and whether or not all these men from around not just the United States and Africa, but from Europe and Asia intermixed throughout their history. It's pretty incredible. So it's not just looking at us. It's also looking at other species because humans get a little randy. Sometimes they mix with others. So the Neanderthal, which lived in Europe, bred with the modern human who lived in Africa when the modern human left Africa and took a little visit up to Europe. When that happened, we exchanged DNA. And even though we don't really know exactly what happened to the Neanderthal, we know that they were wiped out at some point, maybe they were outbred or outcompeted uh, for by modern humans, we do know that as we started to colonize Europe, we being Homo sapiens, we interbred with the Neanderthal and carry their DNA still inside of us today. Most people are a little bit Neanderthal, all of us. And we know that because their DNA is there. And we finally sequenced that human genome and we found it and we proved it for real, not even 20 years ago, just like 15, 10 years ago. So the present of genes is sort of like the future. I mean, when you think about flying cars and you think about rockets and space travel, you also probably think about genetic modification and genetic engineering. It's so connected with science fiction. And genetic modification, it's here. The future is now. GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are everywhere. They're in every grocery store all over the world. There are some that were done through traditional breeding techniques, and those aren't technically considered genetically modified organisms. They're just breeding, so it's like a hybrid organism. But corn, for example, has specifically been bred and modified at the genetic level. A company named Monsanto took corn, and they took the bacteria Bacillus thuringiensis. They just called it BT in their research. Nailed it. Uh, they took the genes from that bacteria, and they put it into the corn. Now, that bacteria lived in a fungus in the corn, so it actually 
brought properties to the corn already. This is just a more direct way, the company felt. And in doing so, that bacteria actually naturally destroys insects. So now that corn can fight those insects off, or that was the idea. So essentially, they genetically modified corn to be more of a pesticide on its own. That is a genetically modified organism. Maybe not as sexy as like a human spliced with a chimpanzee or you know, a dinosaur chicken or something. But it's still a thing, and it's all over the world, and it has changed how we get our food. There are also things that are a little more sexy, like glowing plants, where they've spliced phosphorescence into trees or smaller plants so that they glow at night. They even have done this not just with plants, but with cats. I know it's weird, but they have made glowing cats. They've also made, and this one really creeps me out, goats that produce spider silk in their milk. They added spider genes to goat DNA. So when goats produce milk, they're also producing spider silk. The reason they're doing that is because spider silk is highly valued and very difficult to harvest. It's extremely strong. So now they can get it from something that produces milk all the time. They also created trees that grow faster for the lumber industry, plants that absorb more carbon dioxide so they can absorb more pollution and be a carbon sink. They created cows that fart less methane, 25% less. That's a lot less because methane is a terrible greenhouse gas. All of this is done with genetic modification. There's also things like gene therapy. Gene therapy is experimental. It's only really for dire, non-curable, incurable diseases. Essentially, these are for genetic problems. So if you have a gene that's malfunctioning and that's causing a disease in your body, they take that gene and they knock it out of the way and put in a functioning gene. It doesn't always work, though, and it really only is beneficial for something like anemia or Huntington's, which is based on a single genetic problem. It is not great for things that are based on a variety of things ranging from environmental causes to genetic causes like asthma or cancer. So most genetic modification can be pretty normal and actually fairly helpful. Uh, People have different opinions on GMOs. Most of the world thinks they're okay. You can tell us yours if you'd like. We're always around on the internet. But how they do this regardless of how you feel about it, is super interesting. Essentially, researchers found out that retroviruses can edit DNA. In fact, they do that already. And some of our DNA in our bodies is viral DNA. Viruses that came in, took out parts of our DNA, put in some of themselves, and it's just been passed down for, you know, a long, long time. Viruses are not alive, but maybe they are. It's still a debate. But they're tiny bits of nucleic acid. DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. So when a virus being a tiny bit of nucleic acid connects with deoxyribonucleic acid, it can pull out or interface with our DNA. Retroviruses are RNA, not DNA, which is what DNA uses to copy itself. So when a virus goes up to DNA, it can copy part of it. Specialists replace the DNA in the retrovirus or the RNA in the retrovirus, so it alters a specific gene. Essentially, they're telling this RNA, instead of going to copy yourself and making lots more and you know overwhelming the cell and bursting out and causing herpes or something, instead, here's a little chunk of DNA. Go do your viral thing, hook up to that DNA, and instead of putting in more herpes, put in a cure for this disease. The virus is inserted into the cell, and it copies like it normally would, but instead of messing up the DNA, it maybe creates better DNA. If you do this with 
a person, myself. I injected something that this is what it was supposed to do. That is what gene therapy is. I'm knocking out that old gene and I'm putting in hopefully a new gene. Doesn't always work though. Now, if you did this on a tiny level with a fertilized egg, now you've created an altered genetic being. So when it came to producing that GMO corn, this is likely how Monsanto did that. There's actually a newer method that's even more efficient to do this that's got a lot of scientists super excited, and it's called CRISPR. CRISPR is so easy to do that scientists are actually worried. Essentially, you cut the DNA, then you add a new piece of RNA, and the DNA strand heals itself. When it heals itself, boom, you have altered that organism. I know that sounds simple. It actually is. I know there's more science to that, and it's way more in-depth, but it's beyond my understanding to do. But from a molecular biological perspective, those scientists, it's simple. And that's scaring people because scientists in China used CRISPR to modify non-viable human embryos. They edited humans using this technique, and they showed that human DNA can be genetically modified with this. That's some scary stuff. I mean, we're talking what could happen if people start modifying humans. So right now, we've got this new technique called CRISPR. It's a very simple technique for modifying genetic information. It's so simple that it's actually got some scientists afraid of it. But if we can alter any piece of genetic material put in front of us, the future is going to be pretty crazy. I mean, there are some negatives there, obviously. We've got ethics of genetic editing. What happens if we decide we don't ever want to have natural birth again? Or what happens if the government or you know, the insurance companies will not help people who have not done genetic modification to eliminate diseases or eliminate predispositions for things like obesity or whatever else? As we learn more about the genetic makeup of humanity and we get better at editing it, it's only going to get more complicated for these questions. Who owns what we've created in that case? If I send out my sperm and egg to a company and they send me back something that I can use to make a baby, do they own it or do I? I don't know. These are obviously huge ethical questions that nobody is even exploring yet because it's considered unethical to edit human DNA. But what happens if something a little more accessible happens? Example, genetically modified plants. Plants don't know that they're not supposed to breed because they've been genetically modified. So instead, they'll release pollen into nature, and then those genetically modified eggs and sperms from the plant get on a non-genetically modified plant. That's already happening, and in fact happens in farmers' fields from time to time with genetically modified corn. What if we create something that's so good it becomes an invasive species, destroying natural, non-genetically modified populations? Mosquitoes are terrible. I think we can all agree. Everybody hates freaking mosquitoes. But at the moment, they're causing lots of malaria around the world, and it's very difficult to control mosquito populations. They can spray, but it doesn't always kill them all, and malaria still is infecting hundreds of thousands of people around the world every single year. One of the solutions is to genetically modify mosquitoes and release them into the wild. 
This has actually been proven successful already. What essentially happens is they take the genes of mosquitoes, they modify them so that these mosquitoes grow larger. Turns out that lady mosquitoes like larger male mosquitoes, so they'll only mate with the larger mosquito males that are genetically modified, remember. They're also genetically modified to be sterile. So while mating with them, they don't produce any more mosquitoes, and thus no more, you know, mosquito populations. Bye-bye malaria, which is great. Uh, That's a good thing. However, a bad thing from that is that no single species relies on mosquitoes for their food source, but so many different species relies on them just a little bit that it could cause problems and crashes in other species. Mosquitoes have three different life cycles. They have eggs, they have larvae, and then they have full-grown mosquitoes. The fish eat the larvae. Bats eat the mosquitoes when they're alive and large. None of them, again, a lot, but enough. So if you don't have any mosquitoes, that could mean that there are fish populations that crash. If fish populations that are small that eat the mosquito larvae crash, then we could have other fish that eat that fish or other animals that eat that fish, they could crash. Then we could have animals on land or fish that we eat that no longer exist simply because we genetically modified something and didn't know what we were doing. That's bad. That's really, really bad. And remember, they think this is an easy thing. CRISPR makes things easy. Eventually, if we modify enough things with genetic with genetic engineering, it could lead to a total collapse of the food chain if we don't pay attention. And it's not very easy to undo this stuff once it's been released onto the planet. Because let's be honest, everyone. Look at all of the things humans have ever created. Are they really well organized? Are they perfect in every way? No, we're not very good at that. We really don't know what we're doing. And in this case, with genetic modification, we have some idea which is how we create GMOs and how we create things that do some things better. But overall better? That's a debate. Genetic modification of humans has already been talked about in science fiction and in uh, the halls of politics around the world. Think about the movie Gattaca, classic. (laughs) It's a perfect society. The best of humanity are born every day. And that might work in science fiction, but in real life, there are billions of people on this planet. Are we going to replace them all with designer babies? Are we only going to breed designer humans from now on? Sure, there's no disease. There's no problems with genetic uh, disorders of any kind, but they're also, I mean, okay, let's, let's, I'm not going to pick on any specific, but let's think of the royal family. Their genes are not that different from each other Also, not the most exciting chaps in the world. Imagine if everyone was the same. We had no variation in our genetic diet. We had no creativity because people wouldn't be that different. We'd all be pretty much the, you know, in America, probably the all-American person. There'd be no excitement. Be a bunch of really pretty people kind of happily going about their lives, all doing, you know, the same thing. But come on, can only have so many lacrosse teams before you're like, this is boring. Can we do something else, please? There are also some positives, though. Genetic modification, I don't want to get down on it. It's awesome science. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Angelina Jolie. She is not genetically modified, but, you know, it's a surprise, I know. But she has something called the BRCA, or BRCA1 gene. 
The BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes are specific genes which are strong predictors of breast cancer. They're very common in certain genetic human genetic lines. People of Ashkenazi Jewish ethnicity have this gene very often, uh, like Angelina Jolie. So what she did is once she learned this genetic information about herself, she got a double mastectomy. She removed her breast tissue so that she would not get breast cancer. She went from a high risk of breast cancer to a very low risk of breast cancer through what was a pretty controversial surgery in the public, but for her, this was the decision she wanted to make. Perhaps in the future, with genetic modification, she could have undergone gene therapy. She could have replaced those BRCA genes with working genes to counteract her mutation that had happened at some point in the Ashkenazi Jewish line. Perhaps instead, before she was born, they could have modified her genes and made it so that that BRCA gene was working from the start. All of this could have been done without major surgery. So imagine what this could bring for the future. We could cure cancer, not necessarily by altering our genes at birth, but maybe doing gene therapy or swapping out problem mutations with this technique or this genetic modification. Imagine what you could do with this in the future. That's just one example. The BRCA gene is an example that we know of today. What if we could alter T cells, which are a type of immune cell, a macrophage, that could then attack cancer cells or attack diseases? We could program them to do that using genetic modification. SAN cells, which help the heart pump, are essentially our natural pacemaker. Sometimes those cells go haywire, so we have to insert a piece of technology with a battery into our bodies to make our heart work well. What if we could just inject some cells that would modify our current cells and turn them into sand cells? They've already started experimenting with that. We've got herpes, which was genetically modified to fight skin cancer. They've modified HIV to fight off incurable leukemia, and it may have worked in a young girl. They modified measles virus to fight blood cancer. They modified polio to fight brain cancer. Gene modification may be dangerous, precarious, and borderline unethical if we get too crazy with it, but it's ultimately, if we do it right, pretty damn awesome. Since it's basically brand new, though, (laughs) we don't even know what we can do with it. We don't know what we can do with it or how we should use it. We're just getting into this big sandbox. Thank you so much for listening to Seeker Plus. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate it. Those ratings do matter. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find more science everywhere that you can find Seeker. We're on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. We have all sorts of really awesome shows. We are everywhere. You can also find me out there. Just look for Trace Dominguez. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories from the science multiverse. Thanks for listening to Seeker Plus. Seeker Plus.